I just have two kind of opening comments that I'd like to make before we pray and get into the details of what we're going to be talking about. The first is that, although this is a hot topic, it's really important for us to remember that we're actually talking not about a topic, but about people, about people's lives, uh, about people's own personal journey of learning and growing and, and figuring out who they are, um, people who are made in the image of God, people who are incredibly precious to God, and people who are complicated, right, like you and me, people who are trying to figure things out and move forward. So whatever else goes on tonight, and we are going to be having to define some terms and think through some concepts, we're going to be looking at the Bible, I don't want us to forget that we're fundamentally talking about people. Um, you might be here tonight thinking through questions of gender identity for yourself. You might be here because you've got a friend or a spouse or a sibling who is navigating these things for themselves. So as we go on, I just want us to remember that we're not mainly talking about ideas. We're talking about people and their lives. And the reason we're, we're wanting to do this is because God loves people, right? And his church loves people, and he wants the best for them, and so do we. The second thing um, I want to say is when we think about gender identity and Jesus, there's a lot that's connected in those things. And so we're going to be thinking about gender identity in kind of cultural, historical context. We're going to be thinking about Jesus and his word and various theological truths that connect with that. And we're going to end um, the talk by thinking about pastoral responses, four categories of responses that I'd like to suggest. So um, the presentation hangs a lot of things together. I would love you... If you've got a question, to write it down and ask it at the end. Um, it may be that we'll get to some things that, that get raised early on. Um, so please um, bear with me as we move through it. And maybe that question will get answered, maybe it won't. But if you could jot it down, I'd love to engage with some questions at the end. Well, let's pray quickly and then I'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you for your grace and that you love us. We pray tonight that by your spirit you would help us to grow in wisdom so that we might understand ourselves better and so that we might love our neighbors better. Amen. Okay, so on, a, on any given topic, it's always good to start with defining our terms. I'm going to start with defining some of the major terms in this conversation. You may already be familiar with these. Maybe you, you aren't. Uh, the four key terms um, that are good to be aware of as we discuss this are biological sex, gender identity, transgender, and gender dysphoria. Uh, biological sex, as I'm sure you know, uh, refers to being male or female. It refers to your physiology. It refers to genetics. Uh, that is going to be um, often, in our culture at the moment, distinguished from gender, which is seen as more psychological and social roles that people have. So gender identity is the internal sense that someone has of being a man or a woman. Um, and of course, one of the discussion points here is that someone's gender identity may or may not line up with their biological sex. The term transgender is an umbrella term to describe people whose gender is not the same as their biological sex, um, or doesn't sit easily with their biological sex. And then the fourth term here is gender dysphoria. This is actually a psychiatric diagnosis where the disconnect between biological 
sex and gender identity creates a level of distress uh, that is severe enough to impact someone's kind of everyday life. Uh, it's important to notice that not everyone who identifies as transgender will have gender dysphoria. Um, the gender dysphoria is a distressing, painful, real experience um, and, and is, di is diagnosed by a mental health professional. So these are the terms we're going to be thinking about. Um, and as we approach this, it's helpful to recognize that this discussion of gender identity doesn't come in a vacuum. Um, I think 20 years ago, the concept of having a gender identity that was separate from biological sex would not have had the kind of, uh, it wouldn't have been intuitively plausible in the way that it is today. Um, today, it seems much more plausible that that could be a struggle for someone. And so it's worth asking, how did we get here? What's going on in our culture, in our history, to kind of explain this? And the major point I want to make around culture is that um, sociologists have described our culture as one of expressive individualism. Uh, that was a term coined by sociologist Robert Bella. And this expressive individualism has both sexual and political entailments to it. So I'm going to try and unpack this uh, in the next few minutes. Now, you probably don't read sociology books unless you're studying sociology here at the university. Um, and so you may not be familiar with the term like expressive individualism and may not mean much to you. It's the intuitive belief that each person has a unique core that can only be realized if it's expressed. Um, it has to be expressed in order to reach its kind of actualization. Now, again, you're probably not familiar with any of the textbooks on this, but some of the key phrases I'm sure you know. Here would be some of the phrases that reflect this idea of expressive individualism. You be you. Heard that before? Be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. Um, these are phrases that you know, are relatively common. Um, I had the joy last week of going to watch Imagine Dragons in Cape Town. It was fantastic. And... One of the things that made the concert so powerful is the way that their lyrics and even the way they performed on the night recognizes the unique individuality of each person. Uh, there was a striking moment where uh, the lead singer spoke to a 12-year-old boy about his kind of unique personality and life calling and destiny, and it was, it was very moving. And so it's important to recognize that expressive individualism isn't all always bad. There's actually a lot of good in it. It's good to recognize that people are unique. They are unique. <laughs> uh, it's actually healthy to live in a culture where we value uh, yeah, the individual details of a person's life. Not everyone is the same, and we don't want to box people. That can be harmful. But expressive individualism runs into challenges when it comes to identity formation. Right? When it comes to defining who we are and obtaining an identity, expressive individualism can't really do that for us. And what you see happening is a clash between individuality and authority. Theologian Timothy Keller describes the expressive individual as the sovereign self because he says for the expressive individual the only person who can define them, the only person who has, who has the authority to define them is themselves. They have to be sovereign over themselves. They have to be sovereign over their identity. No one else can give them that identity. Only they can do it for themselves. 
And so instead of getting my identity from my family or from my background or from my church or, or from other traditions or other sources, identity is created by asserting my desires, my beliefs, regardless of what others say. Uh, now, in discussing the sovereign self, um, Keller points out that there's a key person who kind of embodies this in modern culture, and it's Elsa from Frozen. I don't know if anyone's seen Frozen, but I've got, uh, I've got three daughters, so I've seen this movie many, many, many times. Um, I'm familiar with all its ins and outs, and maybe, maybe you're not, so let me just su- summarize the plot for you. So Elsa has got these kind of superpowers. She can create snow and ice, but these powers are unpredictable, and she doesn't know how to control them, and they've, they've caused problems in her life. She's harmed her sister by accident, and her parents don't know what to do, and they get bad counsel, and they tell her to suppress these things. And not only does she have to suppress these uh, powers that really form a part of who she is, but she has to isolate from people because she can't control them. And so more and more, as, as the movie unfolds, uh, Elsa is suppressing who she is. She's suppressing these powers, and she's isolating from others, particularly from her sister. And it's actually very sad as the movie opens. You think this is a totally unsustainable approach to navigating who you are. Um, she is suppressing herself. She's in isolation. And on her 21st birthday, it all goes pear-shaped. Her powers come out in a traumatic way. It's chaotic. People are screaming. She runs away. And as she runs away uh, to the frozen slopes of the North Mountain, it's only there, on her own, that she finally comes to terms with who she really is. And in that iconic song, she lets it go, and she actually says, this is who I really am. And it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful scene, because it is in the expression of who she is that she is transformed. It's actually in articulating her beliefs and desires. It's in coming to terms with with herself as she knows herself to be, that she is transformed from someone who is fearful and kind of neurotic and scared and depressed into someone that is, you know, what we'd call congruent. Their, their inside and their outside is the same. And just in case you think I'm a sort of overly analytical dad watching these movies, um, there was a Psychology Today article on, uh, on Let It Go and Elsa, and the author said that the analysis uh, that Let It Go was more than a melody. It was a motto for our age. This song celebrates the letting go of culturally defined roles and expresses the exhilaration of discovering one's true self. Letting go, in this sense, is liberation from stereotypical norms. Right? So you don't have to be Elsa to recognize that this is a part of our culture, Hey, that expressing who we are. We're all kind of expressive individuals. We may not even think of it that way, um, but we all are, are learning uh, to express who we are, and particularly through social media and other things. A big part of our identity comes through expressing uh, particular beliefs and desires. Uh, but historians have pointed out that expressive individualism on its own doesn't explain gender identity and the questions around it. There's a a sexualized and politicized component to expressive individualism that takes us in that direction. And Carl Truman, who's done some remarkable historical analysis on these trends, 
um, credits uh, Freud's ideas with really shaping Western thinking on this. He says the following, uh, Freud has provided the West with a compelling myth, the idea that sex in terms of sexual desire and fulfillment is the key to human existence. Thinking of human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desires is virtually intuitive for us all. We are categorized as straight, gay, bi, queer, and so on, and sexual preferences, once considered private and personal, are now matters of public interest, means by which we are recognized. Truman points out that before Freud, it would have been very strange to think of your identity in terms of your sexual desires. Uh, those things would have been considered very private and not really fundamental to your identity. But since Freud, they've become means by which uh, people articulate who they are and by which they ask others to recognize them. So with Freud, sex is transformed from something you do into someone you are. And that's why when we talk about sexuality in our culture at the moment, it always comes down to issues of identity. And I think that's why it's such an emotive topic, because people are saying, this is not just about what I do, this is about who I am. But Truman points out that it's not just that we've got a sort of sexualized psychology, it's that we've got a politicized sexuality. And uh, the reason for this is that what's happened over the years is that um, there's been an interesting combination of ideas from Karl Marx overlapping with concepts uh, posited by Freud. So you've got Marx's ideas of political oppression uh, mixed together with Freud's notions of sexual repression. In other words, the argument kind of morphs into this. Because humans are essentially sexual, to reach sexual liberation, you need political liberation. Right? You, you have to have the freedom to have that sexual freedom, and for that, you often will need political freedom that goes with it. And so these, these kind of twin ideas of political oppression um, and sexual repression are linked in our, in our culture at the moment. It's why um, questions around sexuality are so political now. So the modern self is an expressive individual whose sense of identity is, is sexualized and whose sexuality is politicized. It's no longer just a personal, private thing. It's now a matter for my identity, and it's an issue that faces us in the public square. But again, you might think, well, you know, most people don't think at this, you know, most people aren't reading textbooks on sociology or political theory. So how is it that the average person has found this intuitively compelling? And Truman, again, uh, points out there's two kind of answers that help us. The first is, developments in technology, right? Um, there have been all sorts of changes in technology, from medical technology, which means we can do things with our bodies that we could just never do before, um, to changes in how we consume and participate in information, social media and the internet. Uh, these developments in technology have made certain things plausible that wouldn't have been plausible 100 years ago. They've made certain ideas powerful in ways that they just wouldn't have intuitively resonated with us years before uh, the technology existed. So that's the one thing, that technology is a factor in how we've arrived where we have. 
The other is a concept um, developed by Charles Taylor, a philosopher, called the social imaginary. The social imaginary is essentially society's basic intuitions about the way the world works. Um, it captures um, your sense of imagination. Right, so these things are not, most people don't arrive at conclusions about who they are because they've read a textbook or through a series of logical propositions. Most people arrive at a sense of identity of who they are because of what they see and hear from others, of how they move around in the world, the songs they listen to, the books they read, the movies they watch. This is actually how most of us construct our identity formation. And as the social imaginary has shifted, because of these underlying shifts around how we think about sexuality and freedom and politics, um, the social imaginary has shifted along the way, which makes certain things more plausible than other things. As we've recognized that the body can be uh, adapted in ways that it couldn't be before, as we've realized we can make community with people online, all sorts of things that wouldn't have been plausible 20 years ago suddenly seem like they have much more plausibility. A lot of what I've said now would kind of apply generally in Western contexts. I'm going to make one or two comments about our South African context that I think make this uh, even more compelling, actually. Uh, South Africa is, of course, a rich melting pot of different cultures. There's not kind of one culture in our country. But one of the elements in our social imaginary is the legacy of colonialism and apartheid. Uh, we live in an environment where there's ongoing trauma, where there are legacy issues around injustice and inequality. There are current levels of violence and poverty. And uh, a UCT professor, Wabi Long, wrote a book recently called Nation on the Couch. Uh, he's a, he's a psych psychotherapist, you can tell. Um, and his key argument in this book is that South Africans, the kind of collective subconscious of South Africans, can be understood in one word, alienation. He says it's the one thing all South Africans have in common. You see, South Africans feel alienated in almost every sense, from their loved ones, from their work activities, from their political leaders, and most of all, from each other. If you feel alienated from people that are close to you, as well as your institutions and your society and your leaders, that is going to make it very hard for you to get um, trustworthy sources for your identity formation right? Your identi identity formation is going to have to be more subjective and personal because you're so disconnected from the society around you. A lot of South Africans don't know how to navigate with our past or our present. And this, I think, actually makes subjective identity formation uh, even harder to resist because how much of your identity can you get from things around you? Um, in addition, I think, we have a right sensitivity to anything that sounds oppressive. Given our past, we are justifiably concerned for justice, for righteousness, for equality. And so anything that sounds like it's going to harm or cause distress in other people is intuitively distressing for us. Right? We don't want to do that to other people. We don't want to harm them. We want to help them. And I think that means in South Africa, this is even harder to engage on because of our past and because of some of the unique features of our social imaginary. 
Wabi Long's book is very interesting, and I'd, I'd uh, recommend uh, you consider it. It's, it's obviously not, I wouldn't agree with everything he says in it, uh, but it's helpful in terms of understanding where we are. The point I'm trying to make here in this first section is simply to say that when it comes to something even as personal as gender identity, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. We exist in a cultural environment, in a historical environment, and things that seem plausible to us actually are plausible because of historical preconditions that have to be there. <laughs> and some of those historical preconditions are the things I've been talking about. They play a role, and it's worth us recognizing them as we move towards understanding this, both for ourselves and for others. So that's the first thing I'd like to say, and maybe during Q&A you'd like to ask some more questions about that. So that's the gender identity in kind of cultural context. Now we're going to think about the, the and Jesus part, okay, the theology. There's a lot we could say here, but in my remaining time, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to highlight four anchor points, I think. Four, four theological truths that help us as we move towards this. They're not going to answer every question, but I think these four truths are critical anchor points when it comes to understanding um, some of the key issues around this. The first is grace. Okay. Um, God's grace should frame how we think about the Christian life. Uh, grace is the foundation for our ethics. Um, but to understand what the Bible means by grace, we have to understand a few other things, right? Okay. So I'm going to. There's two things in particular we have to understand if we are really going to appreciate what the Bible says about grace. The first is we have to understand that God is our good creator. God has made us in his image. Uh, the Bible reveals him as a father. We were made to be his children. Because he created us, he loves us, and he has authority over us. Um, the, the doctrine of creation is actually the basis for human accountability to God. Because he made us, uh, he not only loves us, um, but he can hold us to account. So that's the first thing. Grace has to keep in mind the reality of God the creator. The second thing, importance when it comes to understanding grace, is that God is not just our good creator. God is our righteous judge. The Bible clearly teaches us that although God has made us for relationship with him, we've actually turned our backs on him. The consequences of that are very easy to see. Because we've turned our back on God and we've chosen not to love him, we can't love our neighbor as ourselves. And the history of the world is really a litany of the ways in which that's gone wrong. Right? So every time you read the news and you see how people treat other people, that is a symptom of our rebellion from God. And so God is right to call us to account. If you think of the things you, we've seen in the history of our country, the things we read about every day in the news, we actually want a righteous judge. <laughs> we actually want someone who is holding people accountable. But of course that creates a problem for us <laughs> because we too are rebels. We too have gone our own way, done our own thing. And so God is not just our good creator, he is our righteous judge. And in that context... Grace is God treating us like we don't deserve. Instead of punishing us rightly, God sent his son to live the life of love and justice and righteousness. We should have lived but didn't. He took our place. He took our punishment so that we might be forgiven, so we might get his righteousness. 
That's what grace means, that although we've turned away from God, um, actually, through Jesus, we can be forgiven. Paul puts it powerfully in the New Testament letter, 1 Corinthians. He says it this way, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's two things worth noticing in that passage. It's a very attention-grabbing passage, isn't it? The first thing to notice is that unrighteousness comes in all sorts of shapes and behaviors. Right? There's not just one thing in that list. It's not just um, sexual immorality, for example, or sexual behavior that God is concerned about. It's all sorts of other things, uh, drunkards, uh, greedy, uh, reviling, which is you know, what people do to each other on Twitter. <laughs> um, when you look at a list like this, you realize we're all in the same boat. Right? We're all guilty. We've all done stuff like this, right? So there's not a category here. There's not a hierarchy of some things that are worse than others. It's not even an exhaustive list, right? I mean, we just, we'd run out of space if it was an exhaustive list. It's, got, it's, it's Paul saying, this kind of thing means that these people won't inherit God's kingdom. So that's the first thing to notice, is that we're all in the same boat. When we talk about sexuality, particularly as churches, um, churches don't talk about this because they're, they're superior, we're all in the same boat. We're all equally fallen. The second thing to notice, though, is the power of grace. Look at Paul's language. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The grace of God is sufficient to find you wherever you are. Particularly when it comes to areas of sexuality, there's a lot of shame involved. And we can feel like I've done things or experienced things that just mean God's, God's grace isn't enough for me. And the beautiful thing about reading the Bible is that you discover you're wrong. And that God's grace actually is sufficient. And that he can forgive and cleanse and restore and transform God's grace is powerful enough, regardless of what we've done, regardless of where we are, regardless of where we're even at in our thinking around gender, God's grace is enough. It's enough for you. It's really important that you see grace as the kind of foundational theological truth here. Uh, There are other things we're going to look at in a second, but grace helps you see that God is fundamentally for you. He wants to bring you into his family. He wants to restore you and renew you. And actually, being confident of his love helps you do some of this deeper work around identity formation. If you're not confident of God's love, if you think that God's love is sort of dependent on you figuring out your identity, that'll be way too stressful, (laughs) right? You've got to first be assured of God's love. Once you're assured of God's love, then figuring out, Identity stuff, it's still complicated, it's still hard, but you can do that within the framework of his grace. So that's the first thing, grace. That's the first kind of anchor point. 
the power of God's grace for all of us. The second is identity. The Bible teaches us, if we think about grace, we're thinking about what the Bible teaches about redemption. When we think about identity, we're going to go back to what the Bible teaches us about creation. The Bible says that we are made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, verse 27, we read the following. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. With my kids, I'm going through a little catechism called the New City Catechism. It's really helpful. One of the questions early on is, why and how did God create us? And the answer is, he created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. Right? God made us in his own image. This is a truth that has shaped the world for good. And, and just a few verses after that in Genesis 1, God says that when he looks at people, when he looks at what he's made, he says it was very good. Now, that's quite hard to believe sometimes because, I don't know about you, sometimes you look in the mirror and you don't think, very good. <laughs> you think, oh, I look tired. I haven't slept enough. Or, what's that stuff in my teeth? Or, I need a haircut. Or, you know, there's lots of things that you might think when you look in the mirror. When God looks at what he's made, he says, very good. The gender binary that God has created is good. Doctrine of creation says that God's creation is good. It's a good thing. There are a couple of implications this has for us. The first is that we have to recognize that God says our bodies are very good. They're his good gift to us. Now, you may not always feel like your body is a gift, <laughs> right? It doesn't, it's got all sorts of, I mean, all of us will have various different types of things wrong with our bodies. But it's, it's really helpful to remember that God sees this as a good thing. We ought to be thankful for what God has given us. As a professor of theology at Oxford University, Oliver O'Donovan, a number of years ago, wrote the following. He said, speaking specifically about our gender, he said, the sex into which we have been born is given to us to be welcomed as a gift of God. The task of psychological maturity, for it is a moral task and not merely an event which may or may not transpire, involves accepting this gift and learning to love it, even though we may have to acknowledge that it does not come to us without problems. I think that's such a helpful insight. Psychological maturity involves learning to accept that God has given us the body he has, and I think O'Donovan is right to recognize that this doesn't come without its challenges. There are a number of times, I'm sure, when you don't always feel grateful for the body you've got. And this is going to be more complicated the more physical challenges you have. But the essential corollary to God the good creator is that we are grateful to him and thankful for what he's made. So that's the first implication, is recognizing that our bodies are God's good gift to us. The second implication, I think, of the doctrine of creation is that our bodies reveal our identities. Now, this is a, this is a very um, countercultural thing to say, so let me kind of back it up a little bit. Because I am made male or female in the image of God, my body is a constitutive element of my identity. What I feel about myself can never be the full picture 
because God has defined me a certain way. And that is revealed by the body he has given me. God has made us embodied souls. That's sometimes the language you might hear theologians use. You've got, you're an embodied soul. You have a soul, right? That's the non-physical part of you. But you've got a body as well. And my body is actually a part of my identity. Uh, Sam Albury has written a fantastic book uh, on our bodies. Um, it's not available there, but you can get it if you order it online, I'm sure. And he says that our physical bodies play an essential role in revealing who we are. I am more than my body, right? You're, you're not just your body, but you're not less than your body. Your body is a key indicator of your identity. Another theologian, Robert Smith, um, does an interesting job of looking at the language used in Genesis 1 and 2. And he says the language you see earlier on is kind of biological language, male and female. And the language you see later on is what we would call um, kind of psychological or social language, like gender language. So he says, for example, um, in Genesis 1, you, you move from man and woman to Genesis 2, um, you start to see what gender roles look like. So uh, males become husbands and fathers and brothers, and females become mothers and wives and sisters. And he says that uh, a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender and uh, certain key gender roles. I think that's a really helpful insight. So the Bible sees a connection, a direct connection between biological sex and gender identity. Now, we're going to think about the fact that that doesn't always seem to um, be everyone's experience. We'll get to that. Uh, but it's helpful to see how the Bible frames this. It's worth making one other um, point. We, all, we are aware of a condition called intersex when someone's born uh, and there is a uh, Physiologically, it's not always clear if this person is primarily male or female. It's a very rare condition. It, it, it does occur. Um, and sometimes people will say, well, the, the presence of the intersex condition reveals that gender isn't a binary. But it's actually remarkable that there's a place in Scripture where Jesus seems to recognize the intersex condition in the very same place that he talks about the gender binary. So in Matthew 19, we won't look at this passage. We don't really have enough time. Jesus reaffirms uh, Genesis 1 and 2 around the gender binary, but he also talks about eunuchs. It's actually a very confusing passage. One of the things he mentions are uh, people have been born eunuchs. And a number of people point out that that is, you know, um, today we would think of that as sort of the intersex condition, very rare condition. Um, but it doesn't remove the gender binary. So the Bible recognizes exceptions. It's actually remarkably nuanced. The Bible recognizes that we live in a, in a world where our bodies don't work the way they should. We are, we are born with physical challenges, um, with disabilities. Um, that doesn't mean that God's design isn't there, though. And so we've got to hold those two together. We live in a world where God has designed us, but that design isn't always manifested um, in a perfect way because we live in a fallen world. Creation itself is brokenness. Uh, creation itself is broken, and this brokenness affects all of us. I'm sure there are questions about that, and I'd love to hear them when we get there. So we've got 
God's grace, sufficient for who we are, um, God's creation, revealing our identity, partly through our bodies. The third uh, theological anchor point that's worth mentioning is our sexuality, and particularly the nature of sexual desire. Now, this is where I'd like you to do a little bit of Bible uh, study. I'm going to give you a minute or two to do this on your own. I'd like you to take a look at Leviticus 18, from verse 6 to verse 30. And I'm going to ask two questions. I'm going to put them up on the screen as well. I'm not going to read that whole passage, um, but I'd like you to have a look at it. And the two questions I'd like you to answer, maybe you can do this with a friend next to you. What does God forbid when it comes to sexual activity? So just make a list in your head. Chat to your friend. What does God prohibit? And what does that tell you about the nature of sexual desire? Okay? So I'll just give you about 30 seconds or a minute or so. I'll let you, I'll let you do that. And try and just think through those two questions as we do so. Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask you to list all the things that are prohibited. <laughs> but I think you can say that there's a lot of things that are prohibited. Hey, all sorts of things. Um, all sorts of people you can't have sexual activity with. Not just people, but animals as well. It's quite remarkable. And God says, if you read the whole thing, this is what the nations did before you, before they came to this land. So this was actually not like a unique thing. Uh, in fact, I think we're meant to understand that this is actually fairly typical behavior that God is prohibiting. He doesn't want his holy people to engage in this kind of uh, sexual expression. Now, I think that tells us something very important about the nature of sexual desire, and it's this. I think the Bible teaches us not that there's a stable sexual orientation that people have, but that sexual desire is polymorphous. What I mean is sexual desire can attach itself onto a variety of people, objects, it shifts and can move from one thing to another. Now, this, I think this idea is actually kind of gaining more traction in kind of secular academia, but for a long time, in, in at least kind of Western context, there was this idea of a sexual orientation, like a sort of fixed orientation. And for a lot of people, their experience would be that they have maybe a predominant orientation, but I think the Bible's more nuanced than that. I think the Bible recognizes that sexual desire is, is actually more fluid than that. It can attach itself onto different objects, which is why you have prohibitions like this. Um, consider this example. This is a remarkable, you know, every now and then you read something that's, uh, online. You think, wow, I'm, a, I'm amazed that someone was this honest. This is an article from the uh, British politics magazine, The Spectator. Uh, anonymously written, you can understand why in a second, uh, of someone who'd got kind of caught up in um, an addiction to internet pornography. This is what they said. One day I was surfing the net, as usual. By this stage, they'd already kind of started getting a, in a, a developing addiction. I happened across a website that contained spanking images. Intrigued, I logged on. And to my surprise, I had an intense sexual reaction to them. What was going on? I had not the slightest idea that I was into spanking. 
The next day, I went onto Google and started searching out more spanking-rich websites, and he lists a long uh, bunch of names. And he says, this was the moment that my real addiction set in. My interest in spanking got me speculating. What other kinks was I harboring? What other secret and rewarding corners lurked in my sexuality that I would now be able to investigate in the privacy of my flat? Plenty, as it turned out. Over the following months, I discovered that I had a serious penchant for, and a long list of other things. The internet had had other words revealed to me that I had an unquantifiable variety of sexual fantasies and quirks, and that the process of satisfying these desires online only led to the generation of more interest. Hear what he's saying? He's saying, I didn't realize I was into this thing, and I didn't realize I was into that thing, and, and suddenly I just discovered that I had an unquantifiable variety of sexual desires, and nothing actually satisfied them. They just kept growing. And actually, I mean, if, I mean, in the whole article, he actually ends up in hospital, kind of, from, from this addiction. But it's a, it's a very striking point that the Bible warns us about when it comes to sexual desire. There is an element of sexual desire in which it's chaotic, it's polymorphous, it's insatiable, and it needs um, God's help to be channeled and controlled. There's, a, there's an image in the Bible of sex in the book of Proverbs that sex is like fire, it's powerful, but it can be destructive as well. Now, it's worth noticing this for a particular reason as well. Because sexual desire is polymorphous, it should never be used as a basis for your identity. What our culture has done is something quite remarkable. It's used sexual desire as a key indicator for your true identity. But if you think of the unquantifiable variety of sexual desires that a person can have, that's an incredibly unstable basis for personal identity. Because every time your sexual desires change, your identity will have to change. And you'll, I mean, you know, that your identity will be in flux because your sexual desires will constantly be in flux as well. See, what we've done in our culture is we've said to people, When you have a certain kind of desire, that's an indicator of who you really are. What the Bible does is says, you should expect to have a wide range of quite odd desires occasionally. Don't worry. (laughs) That's not telling you who you are. Right? So this is significant, especially for young adults, for teenagers, for students, because sometimes what can happen is you'll notice, perhaps, I mean, perhaps you don't want to notice it, maybe you do, maybe you, maybe you want to suppress it, but you might notice you've got a certain kind of sexual desire. Maybe you hadn't had that desire before. And what our culture does is says, that's an indicator of your identity. And so people start thinking, well, maybe I am, maybe fundamentally I'm someone else. Maybe I'm someone different to who I thought I was, because my desires now seem to be changing. I think the Bible would warn us not to use desire as a basis for identity. It's very helpful to de-link your desires from your identity. What that actually does, I think, is it helps you come to terms with your desires more honestly, because they're not threatening your identity. You can actually acknowledge them and deal with them and figure out how to move forward with them. Um... 
What, we, what we've done, though, which is a huge mistake, I think, is we've said, actually, your sexual desire really reveals who you are. But as your desire changes, inevitably, your identity will have to change. And because of the poly, polymorphous nature of those desires, because of how, how various they are, that's, I think, a bit of a disaster when it comes to identity formation. Okay, so we've thought about grace, we've thought about our identity, we've thought about sexuality. Lastly, I'm going to mention this very briefly and then move on, community. Uh, we are social beings, we were created for relationship with God and for each other. This creates a little bit of a problem, though, when it comes to thinking through difficult topics like this, because... Um, People have pointed out there's an excellent book by an English professor called Alan Jacobs called How to Think. And he says, the challenge we have is we would prefer to belong than to think. <laughs> right? All of us fear being put in the out group. And he's got this great phrase. He says, if you, if, you're, if, you, if you think the wrong thing, you'll become the repugnant cultural other, the RCO. <laughs> uh, this is what happens if you're, if, you, if you're accused of wrong think. And so he says, actually, all of us have this this tension, he's drawing on on an essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. We all have this tension within us to belong and to think. We do want to think, but our desire to belong is typically stronger than our desire to think. So we are disincentivized from thinking because we don't want to be accused of becoming the repugnant cultural other and being shunned. Um, And so we would prefer not to. And so good thinking is going to require courage, right? The willingness to think uh, means you, you have to come to terms with the fact that maybe this is going to put me in some kind of tension with one of the communities I'm a part of. And most of us are, are members of multiple communities, you know, maybe your church community, your school community, your university community, maybe you're part of a sports club or whatever. Um, thinking carefully across your whole life is going to put you in some of those communities at some tension points. God's word says the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Right? We need to trust God and think and be prepared to think. Um, but the Bible recognizes that's going to be hard for us because we all have a desire to belong and that disincentivizes us from thinking. So those are the four I think anchor points, uh, theologically, that can help us. There are a lot more, but those are, as I've kind of walked with people and thought about this as a pastor in my own church, these are the four things that I've found we have to keep coming back to again and again. The power of God's grace, the fixed nature of our created identity, uh, the polymorphous nature of sexual desire, and the fear of rejection, because we're all built for community. These four things help us as we think this through. I'm going to end by thinking about responding well. What does it mean to respond well? We've spent most of our time trying to understand this and think it through, but when you go home from this, um, you may have friends, this may be something you, you are navigating yourself, you've got loved ones that are navigating this. How do we respond well? I'm going to give four categories. I got these from a guy called Andrew Bunt. He's a British pastor. There's a heart response, a head response, a home response, and a hope response. Okay, we'll go through those quickly. The first thing is 
intuitively, we need to have a, a good heart response to people. For anyone navigating questions of gender identity, um, our first response should be one of compassion. Right? Because that person is, is going to be usually in a state of distress of some kind, of discomfort. The reason they're asking questions around their gender identity is because at some level they don't feel like they belong in their body. If that's you, you know how distressing that is. If that's not you, it's helpful to try and imagine how hard that might be for someone. To look in the mirror and to feel like that, the person looking back at me is not the person I feel I am. And again and again and again in the Bible, when Jesus encounters people who are in distress or who are suffering, he responds with compassion. And I think compassion should be our, our default mode as Christians. Right? When, we, when we move towards people who are navigating things, we should respond with compassion. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus comes from the book of Isaiah. It's quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah said, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. I don't know about you, I've got a lot of smoldering wicks in my house with all this load shedding. Um, and uh, you see them kind of flickering. Um, so easy to snuff them out. Hey, they're on the brink of, of, of kind of being extinguished. Uh, it, it's hard for us to think of a bruised reed because um, we don't hang out with reeds that much. But I, I've sort of thought of those, you know, those eco straws that, that if you go to Vida now, you get a, you get a smoothie. You, and it's okay for a while, but after like... When you're halfway through, it starts to get all soggy and, and stops working properly. And what do you do with one of those things? You think, it's, it, can't, you, it doesn't work anymore. I'm going to get rid of it and get another eco straw, and that'll be, I'm sure that's better for the environment somehow. Um, if, if, if we're eco straws that are soggy and not working anymore, Jesus doesn't throw us away. Right? He looks at us, soggy eco straws that can't work properly. And he says, I'm going to make you one of those beautiful steel straws. You know, the stainless steel straws. Some people take them around with them because they don't like the eco straws. Jesus says, I can take someone who is on the brink of collapse. I can take someone who is feeling broken and full of shame and guilt and fear and rejection. And I can, I can adopt them into my father's family. And I've got a plan for them. And I've got a purpose for them. Right? When Jesus finds us, he doesn't find us in a position of strength. He finds us in a position of weakness and brokenness and confusion and insecurity. And he doesn't throw you away. Instead, he restores you and heals you. In that book by Vaughan Roberts, he says the following, Most of us can only begin to imagine the distress that might be associated with gender dysphoria. Certainly, no one ends up in an operating theater for a radically invasive surgical procedure, having taken the decision lightly. We have to recognize that there must be a huge amount of prolonged distress and struggle behind the decision. So it's vital that we Christians take care never to think or talk of those who struggle in this way with any kind of disrespect. We must speak with compassion and affirm the dignity of every human being. So that's the first heart response, a response of compassion. I'm going to mention one other quickly. A heart response of listening. We should listen. We should be good at listening. Begin with listening. When it comes to understanding someone's experience of their own gender identity, 
There's a lot you might want to say, but focus on listening. Ask questions. Um, try and get a sense of their story. One Christian psychologist who spent a lot of time working um, with people navigating questions of gender identity has said, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. <laughs> right? He's saying everyone's unique. Everyone's story is different. And it's tempting to think, oh, people who have these kinds of struggles all have the same kind of features in the background of their lives. That's not true. That's not been my pastoral experience with people. Rather, take the time to hear their story. And actually, that's a great way of building relationship, of showing that you love them, that you respect them. Don't try and rush in with all those theological truths. Those theological truths are important. But the first heart response is to show compassion and to listen. But we don't just have a heart response. We have a head response. There's a couple of things worth mentioning here. The first is we must remember how the gospel works. Okay, so we must understand the gospel ourselves. Here's what I mean. When I'm talking to someone who's navigating questions of gender identity, my primary goal is not to get them to embrace biblical gender norms. My primary goal is to introduce them to the Lord Jesus. I want them to know his love. I want them to know that he died on the cross for them. I want them to know that through repentance and faith, they can be forgiven. Right? That was what animated the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is my, that's my priority when I'm speaking to someone. I want them to know the love and grace of God. That gives them a great foundation for navigating questions of gender identity. I don't want anyone to think that what I first need to do is figure out my gender identity or see if I can agree with biblical gender norms and, uh, and then God will love me if I do that. If I can figure that all out, then God will accept me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is um, God, <laughs> God loves sinners um, and he died for us while we were powerless, while we were ungodly. So we have to remember that our primary goal is to introduce people to the grace of Christ. And then following on from that, the Bible teaches us that we get transformed day by day as we continue to remember the gospel. We remember that we're sinners saved by grace because we continue to struggle with sin. We continue to get things wrong. Um, our goal would be to move towards a place of clarity, right? If you're in a, in a place of confusion, the the goal would be to grow in clarity over time. But, but I know from my own life, some of my personal flaws and challenges are very intractable, and they take a long time to experience renewal. And that would, be, that would be true for gender identity challenges as well. We wouldn't expect someone to suddenly, get, uh, overnight, kind of change their thinking on this. Again, Vaughan Roberts says, change will certainly not happen overnight, so we need to be patient in caring for one another and instructing one another. Some of our struggles are more obvious than others, but all of us are works in progress. So we need to support and encourage each other as we try and grow together into the likeness of Christ. So we must, the head response begins with understanding the gospel and the priority of grace. The second thing we need, need to do is focus on the heart. 
This is quite complex, and I actually think that you may have a number of questions around this in particular. The Bible teaches us that the heart is active and dynamic. What I mean by that is the heart is always actively interpreting life, and it has dynamic functions in terms of thinking, desiring, and choosing. We don't always maybe experience our hearts in this way, but our hearts are actively interpreting life, actively desiring things we come across, actively believing certain ideas, and making active choices around the things we want. Part of growing in, in maturity as Christians and as, as per, people generally is becoming aware of some of these things that seem kind of below the surface. It's very common when it comes to areas of sexuality to hear someone say, I didn't choose to feel this way. I didn't choose to desire this person. I didn't choose to have these struggles with gender identity. And I think that's right. I agree. I think that people don't actually choose these things. But keep thinking about that idea. Who among us chooses the things we struggle with? Do you choose to struggle with anxiety? Do you choose to struggle with pride? Do you choose to struggle with shame or anger or fear or lust or greed? You see, none of us actually actively choose these things in a sort of conscious way, but the Bible teaches us that our hearts are active and they're actively wayward. They tend to go in the wrong direction, away from God, away from loving him and away from loving others. One New Testament theologian, Richard Hayes, says the Bible's sober, sober anthropology rejects the apparently common sense assumption that only freely chosen acts are morally culpable, quite the reverse. The very nature of sin is that it is not freely chosen. We are in bondage to sin, but still accountable to God's righteous judgment of our actions. A lot of our desires and beliefs may not be consciously chosen, it doesn't mean they're not ours, which is actually good news because it means that we can learn to identify them, take responsibility for them, and ask God's help in seeing them be changed and renewed. And that's the other thing we need to remember about the heart. It's not just active, it's capable of renewal. God's word again and again teaches us this. Psalm 119, verse 73, the psalmist says, Your hands made me and formed me, give me understanding to learn your commands. We can learn God's truth. We can learn to grow in holiness. We can learn to affirm who we are in him. And as time, as we do that, what will happen is that the internalized sense of gender identity will hopefully line up with bio biological sex. And the gap between gender identity and biological sex will be reduced. That won't be quick. Uh, that will take time. Um, but it is something that a Bible-believing Christian can ask God for. Again, Vaughan Roberts says this really helpfully. He says, those who experience gender dysphoria should resist feelings that encourage them to see themselves as anything other than the sex of their birth. They will sometimes fail, whether in thought or deed, as we all do, but they are called to persevere. That may feel agonizing at times, as if they are putting themselves to death. But that is the way of life to which Christ calls all of us. 
Okay, so that's the heart response, compassion and listening, the head response, understanding the gospel and focusing on our hearts, being aware that our hearts can believe things and those beliefs can be renewed and changed. It's a head response, a home response is about community. Right? One of the powerful things about the transgender community is that it really is a community. It really is a place of belonging for people. One of the things that we have as churches is that we can offer people a home. We can offer people a family. Right? The New Testament language of the church often uses family language. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. And even for people who are not yet in the family of God, for people who haven't yet responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, they can, they can get a taste of loving relationships. They can be invited in to see what it looks like um, to be cared for and loved. We want to carry each other's burdens, Paul tells us in Galatians. He says, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. But we don't just have this home response for people kind of thinking this through on the outside of the church. The church should be a home for people on the inside as well who are struggling with these things, right? And so often we can be filled with shame because we're struggling with something, especially something related to our sexuality. Um, but the Bible describes New Testament church life as family, and we want to be in churches where we love each other and we can be honest with each other. It doesn't mean you're going to be honest with everyone in the church about your deepest struggles, but there's going to be a couple of friends in the church, a couple of wise friends that you can trust that can be on this journey with you. So we've got the heart response, the head response, the home response, and then finally the hope response. It is very likely, I think, that even if someone puts their trust in the Lord Jesus, um, believes God's word, meditates on God's word, I think it's still possible that they could live their whole life feeling like there's a disconnect between their gender identity and their biological sex. The Bible teaches us that our renewal process is, is gradual, it takes time, we struggle with all sorts of things along the way, but it also tells us that one day all these things will come to an end. Right? The Christian life is often suffering now and glory later. Pain now and relief later. And framing our struggles in the light of that eternal hope helps us persevere. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. for The old order of things has passed away. One day, all the distress will be removed. Um, one day, all the sad things will become untrue. All the hard things will be over. There will be no more psychological alienation. There will be no more discomfort. There will be no more distress. No more unanswered prayers. Instead, there will be this glorious sense of congruence. Shalom will be restored. And you will be in God's presence perfectly, wonderfully, who you were created to be. And that's what we can offer people. If you're navigating these things now, the Christian hope gives you stuff here and now, relationship with Christ now, belonging in a community now. But more than that, it gives you hope for the future that one day all these things will be resolved. 
And may God help us to keep trusting him as we wait for that wonderful day. Let me pray quickly, and then we can do some Q&A. Father, uh, we have heard a lot tonight, um, and we pray that you would help us to keep on thinking these things through. Thank you for your word. We recognize our struggle in always understanding it in its richness, and we pray you'd help us connect it to our lives and understand its implications for us today. Amen. I'm happy to just take questions from the floor. Is that? Yeah, so maybe people just want to kind of pop up, if you're feeling brave, pop up a, a hand. Okay, no, that's a good question. And I, I actually, the, yeah, the question, if I've understood you correctly, you're, you're saying that is some of the gender identity, uh, the sense of disconnect because of sexual desires? Or are there other reasons for that disconnect? That's a really good point. So um, actually, someone can struggle with gender identity, um, a sense of disconnect, and it's often actually not the same as sexual desire. Sometimes that's a part of it, but actually you can have a transgender person who doesn't have same-sex attraction. So those things are actually separate conceptually. Um, And that's why I emphasize that that um, that responsive listening, because what what you'll find is everyone's different, and actually, in a, in a large large number of cases, it's actually not linked to sexual desire at all. Um, it can be linked to any number of other things. Yeah. So, gender um, questions around gender identity are often actually not connected to sexual desire. They can be, <clears throat> but they're not by default. It's a great question. So if I, I'll just repeat it. Um, how can church communities be places that are winsome? Um, they can be uh, true to their beliefs, but are not unnecessarily alienating people. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I, I, you know, I think the simple thing is that we've always got to remember that um, truth and love go together. Um, and often what can happen is that we can miscommunicate things if we're not careful enough and um, the Bible's understanding around a variety of topics is, is often very different from our culture's understanding. I mean, sin is a good example. Um, what the Bible teaches about sin and what um, perhaps the average person thinks of when they think of sin um, is actually quite different. So if we're not careful, sometimes we can say things and um, people misunderstand us. Um, yeah, so I think it just means we have to be clearer. And I think our own community life can be a powerful apologetic for the love of God. Um, it's not just what gets set up on the pulpit, although that's important, but it's the way that we live. And that itself can be a, a massive kind of um, apologetic for someone who's asking these kinds of questions. Um, yeah, so I think it's communicating well, but then also living well. I think that will help us to be a winsome community. It's a good question. Hmm. Yeah, so the question is sort of around um, if someone's already gone through sex reassignment surgery, they've taken uh, hormone blockers or what, they've, 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 they've done a lot of the medical stuff and they then want to, they've become a Christian, they want to then live according to their kind of God-given um, gender. Um, those are complex things. And you can walk that through in a local church and 
context. Hey, so I think you want to you want to be safe. You want to look after your body. Um, you can't just um, you know you're going to need medical help in that in that journey. Um, so I think from that side, you're going to have a team approach. You're going to have medical professionals involved in caring for that person. Uh, you may also need um, counseling and support as you nav as the person navigates that. So um, we don't believe in kind of instantaneous solutions, hey, that someone suddenly is just going to kind of revert back to where they were five years ago or whatever. Um, you know, if they've, if they've gone through... Um, particularly if they've gone through a very uh, significant physical journey, they're going to need help navigating that with, you know, appropriately qualified medical professionals as well as wise care and counsel and support from their church family and and perhaps even, you know, qualified counselors and that kind of thing. But it, it can be done. There are increasing numbers of stories of detransitioning. Um, it's a very painful thing, but there are more and more stories of that happening because... Um, People weren't always given appropriate care up front. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, that's going to be an important part of the conversation probably in the next while for churches to grapple with. Um, so if someone, yeah, someone comes to you and asks you, where do you stand on the transgender issue? Um, I think, I think it's always good to be honest. Just say, you know, so I'm, I'm always happy to tell someone what I think if they ask me a question. Um, but I would be quite keen on, on just saying to them, I'm, I'm happy to answer you, but I'd be curious to know why you want to know what I think. Like, and, and I'd try to engage them a little bit and say, okay, well, let's have a conversation about it. Um, and tell me what you think. And why do you think that? And yeah, and then, and then it can hopefully turn into a conversation. Um, who you have this conversation with can, can change. Hey, if you're having this conversation with someone who's got gender dysphoria, it's lots of compassion, lots of listening. Um, if you're having this question with someone who's got very sh kind of particular views, um, that can be good. Um, but it depends if, if someone wants to have a conversation about it. Hey, I mean, it's, it's sometimes hard to know who. And, and I think the only thing you can do is try and ask questions and engage and see if they want to engage with you. But I think it's, it's, I think it's helpful to remember that God's word is good. God wants the best for us. And it's good to give clear answers. Uh, you know, I think there's no virtue in sometimes giving an hour-long answer to a short question. Um, but we don't want to be misunderstood, kind of going back to the other question. We want to make sure that we... So if someone's question is framing things in a certain way, I might just say to them, hey, I'm very happy to answer your questions, but I just, I just want to make sure I'm understanding your questions first. So I might have to ask you a question about your question, just to just to know that we're on the same page. So I think I try and keep it relational and turn it into a conversation. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, how should we relate to someone who's asked us to use different pronouns? Um, different people will answer this differently, but I think if it's a friend of yours that if it was me, I would use the pronoun they asked me to. I think if you don't, um, the relationship will probably end. <laughs> So, um, and it's tough. Some people disagree with me and they'd say that, um, that, that, that would be false, you know, but, um, I, yeah, I would want to not be misunderstood. I would, I'd want to say, listen, I'm, I'm happy, happy to go the kind of extra mile there. Um, because I care about this person and I want to be their friend and I want to try to reflect something of God's love and grace to them. Um, but these are kind of, yeah. 
not everyone's always going to give the same answer to some of these questions, but it's, yeah, it is challenging to think through. Um, it's a good question. The question is, if you're asked to share your pronouns, what would you do in a, in a kind of social context? Um, I think a little bit like I've said earlier, I think you could share your pronouns that, that describe you um, truthfully and respectfully. I don't think that necessarily means um, you're complicit in something wrong. I understand the concern around, I don't, I, you know, I, I want to be clear where I you know, I want to be clear I am as a Christian. Um, but I think that the, the the kind of the thing we're trying to honor in these contexts is both truth and love. And actually a lot of these questions are essentially some version of how do we how can I be a loving friend? How can I be a caring person? And how can I be truthful? Um, so I, I think that's in any given context, you will probably know best what to do. I don't know if there's always a right or wrong way. Um, part of the challenge is that because this comes to issues of identity, at some points it may be impossible to avoid being labeled as um, bigoted in some way. Because to disagree with someone's identity is seen to be a very hateful thing. So I think we have to, um, like what Alan Jacobs says, we've got to be sort of prepared to be labeled the repugnant cultural outsider. Um, but we really want to do everything we can to, to be loving and kind and to display the grace um, of God to people. Um, so I think knowing exactly where to draw that line in which situation may just depend um, on where you're at. It's interesting, you know, the book of Daniel is a great example of someone living in a, an environment that's very different from theirs, and Daniel draws the line in certain places, in Daniel chapter 1. Um, why he draws the line there and not somewhere else is interesting. I don't know if we'll always know exactly where to do that. And I think there's actually some value in that. Because what it does is it means that you need to be a wise person. <laughs> and you need to know your context. And you need to know that environment. And ask God for help. Lord, help me to be truthful. Help me to be loving. Um and help me to figure out what that means. Cool, thanks for that. Um, there was a lot there. I'm not going to um, be able to respond to anything, but if I, if I understood you correctly, I think your core question is around why not social, transi why not social transitioning then um, as, a, as, a, as an option? Is that fair? Yeah. Um, some Christians actually would advocate for that. Mark Yarhouse, he was this Christian psychologist I mentioned. He does he does think there's a version of that that's that's helpful for people. Um, my um, I, I think part of this depends on the person's own worldview. Okay, so if, depending on their understanding of what it means to flourish as a person, how they construct their identity, that will all play a factor in their own sense of distress or peace. If they feel like their journey is at odds with who God created them to be, that could be a factor. The essential reason, I think, that um, from a theological um, perspective, why um, 
you'd want to think more carefully about the um, the transition in question is because of what's happening in our hearts. So what what we were created for is to have an identity um, at a heart that all works together congruently, and that isn't the case in in the world for you know since um, since the fall. Um, but part of God's I think goal for us in redemption is to restore that to us. Um, now, as I said, I think that that that's not going to be complete for anyone until the new heavens and the new earth. So I agree with you. I think approaches to sort of pray the gay away, that's not that's not a biblical. You don't see that in the New Testament as a as a kind of treatment plan. Um, but to the Christian vision recognizes that our hearts are being renewed through God's word and we're being transformed into the person we were created to be. So that's part of the Christian worldview. I think what's interesting in your in your question is that underneath your questions, you've got a vision of human flourishing. And it would be really interesting to chat to you about that because it's always helpful for us to think, where do I get that vision of human flourishing from? Um, so it's a good question, but just to say that there are some people who would advocate for some form of social transitioning. I think that that doesn't really pay enough attention to the active desires and beliefs of the heart. Um, so I think deeper care would be helpful. But thanks for raising it. Okay, we're out of time. <laughs>